Raised by Spirit, Chapter 13, the final chapter and break within generational and karmic cycles. It wasn't too long after opening up a storefront in my home and offering weekly meditations and mentor groups, I was formally introduced by Sekhmet to a deity named Metatron, to whom I wasn't aware even existed in the slightest. However, to my surprise, his symbol was, yes, you guessed it, the Tree of Life, the exact logo I unknowingly chose for my rebranded business, also interchangeable with the symbol of Metatron's cube seen in my security cameras, as I mentioned in Chapter 11. And as I mentioned before in previous chapters, channeling Sekhmet was an experience all its own. Even Saint Germain, as I explained, he comes across very kind and loving, supportive when communicating and assisting someone with higher purposes of understanding generational cycles we designed to correct. However, Metatron comes across a little more demanding and matter-of-fact compared to the others. It wasn't long, and he advised me to start making a podcast out of the book that I had been writing and accumulating decades prior with the help of my guides, Orion and Chief. He stated this will help people, and so I started to do just that, hence really the beginning of Raised by Spirit. And granted, yes, these podcasts and writings have been revised a few times to be presented in a proper order, but it was indeed Metatron that advised me to release some of its content freely, openly, and publicly once and for all. Might I point out, I never cared too much for what the internet had to say about deities, as they themselves tell me what I need to know without a human perspective, so I never googled much about Metatron, I just did as he requested. Things like make a podcast and learn Hebrew. Yeah, learn Hebrew. Literally, insert eye roll. To which, to be fully transparent, I have not learned fluently as of 2022, but I did get the gist of it when he came through and said, you need to rewrite the Rider White deck. This definitely took me by surprise, as I never cared for this particular deck of tarot and didn't understand why he would request me, of all people, to rewrite this deck. To me, this deck had always seemed convoluted with unnecessary doubt and negative connotations implied within, especially with the reversed interpretations. Not to mention the illustrations never aligned with my understanding of what I was receiving energetically from them. So all my life, since 12 years old, I had just stuck with what I knew and understood with tarot and how I taught myself, never really looking any further into this Rider White deck and its creation. And again, I would be lying if I said I started to rewrite this deck immediately. I definitely did not. I put it off for about six months, until one day, he again barged in and came through and said the following. Beloved one, in the beginning it was me, the archangel you call Metatron, that gave unto humanity the tarot and the original language you call Hebrew. They both were to be preserved and kept the most high of all traditions throughout all the land. Instead, they were kept secret, twisted and tangled when shared. What had been shared became the distorted and altered translations of its truth and of its purpose. I gave you the tarot as a map back to your truest self, to see each contract you designed to be presented to you in addition to the possibility your choice of resistance offers versus the possibility your choice of response offers, which is the truest form of what you call divination. Within the tarot, each of the 22 major arcana represent the self that had been created based off the choices to resist or respond in any given experience, or, in other words, contract, when presented, thus creating the 22 pathways within the tree of life. The secrets have been scattered as though they are separate, as though life is linear, and I assure you it is not. All connects within time and space, beloved one. 
astrology, the original language, the ones you call angels and the tarot. It is all to be used together as a guide of your contractual obligation and map back to your truest self and your soul's ascension. You are the product of your own work throughout your life's journey, throughout your soul's journey, the journey back to pure consciousness. You are the cosmic Christ on a journey back to yourself. Blessed are the ones who embrace the wisdom of spirit. We have been waiting for your return. Channeled May 2021. It was interesting to me that Metatron was using the same verbiage and terminology as Sekhmet, things like resistance and response and contracts, as she mentioned in chapter 11, as though they were somehow working together on the same council, if you will. I began to channel by automatic writing 492 pages of interpretations and explanations of each of the 78 cards within the Rider White deck, all of which is within part two of the physical book, Raised by Spirit. Nonetheless, this eventually led to the Path of Tarot deck and its creation, which is now available on my website to those that are drawn to them and to those that I am told to gift it to. Prior to this, I only offered my original deck based off the playing cards that I learned from way back when. But this new deck held a massive amount of higher wisdom, in my opinion, and in the opinion of those who have also used the deck. I remember using this for the first time, and my mind was blown in regards to the amount of information that was available in just a few cards, along with the guidance therein for understanding the pathways within our own journey. After the release of this new deck in May of 2021, Metatron hasn't yet requested for me to continue learning Hebrew fluently, thank God. Though he did guide me to look into what's available on the false interpretations of Aleister Crowley's Rider White deck, and I encourage you to do the same, perhaps soon by the end of all three parts of this book, Raised by Spirit, all will see the distortion within the patriarchal perspective and its distortion throughout history. For now, the repetitive use of channeled terms like contracts, response versus react, karma, and generational cycles will all unfold for you to gain a higher level of awareness within your own journey back to oneness. And as we approach the final chapters and breaking of generational cycles between myself, my sister, my mother, and every generation incarnated thereafter, soon you will understand the reason why I've shared so much. This brings us to the final stages of the story. In May of 2021, when I asked my son Jeremy, as he was preparing to move to North Carolina to the NASCAR Technical Institute in June of 2021, if he wanted to join me in a group I was hosting. Surprisingly enough, he said yes. Now I have to mention here, because I know you're all wondering, do your kids have the gift? Yes, absolutely, and the truth is we all do, but inherently, yes, they do. And I'll add, as I've said from day one, my children, both of them, are a million times more intuitive than I could ever hope or wish to be, because that's the way it's supposed to be. Our children are our legacies. And although my mother and I chose to have a very difficult relationship to break the karmic and generational cycles, my sister and I are both our parents' legacies as well. And Jeremy had always participated in the spiritual stuff more than my youngest, even though Jonathan is a carbon copy of myself and my father. However, Jeremy has known since he was a child who his spirit guide was, and he talks to her, and he too is clairvoyant with premonitions, easily able to tap into that part at will. But on the flip side, he was only 18, so it wasn't like it was a main priority of his life at that stage. However, I've always instilled in my children to trust their intuition, even if it goes against what I am telling them, because the inner compass we have goes far beyond parenting. But with Jeremy preparing to go to college 13 hours away from home, I was beyond happy that he was participating and open to whatever guidance was going to come through during that group session. Two things happened that evening. First thing was, my grandmother told me to look up information on Asheville, North Carolina. Secondly, after meditation, Jeremy explained to the group what he saw. 
He described on one side of his vision he saw all of his ancestors, including his great-grandfather, Lindsay, who was my mom's dad, who passed when my mom was just 12 years old. For the record, Lindsay was rarely spoken about to Jeremy, so when he described him, Jeremy didn't even know who he was at first. He went on to explain on the other side of his vision he saw 12 tribes, 12 separate groups of tribes of Native Americans and his spirit guide, Mabry. But to be honest, she was always there, so that was kind of given. And lastly, he described this one Native American male that stuck out the most. But Jeremy was confused because this Native American male seemed so prominent and so important, yet he didn't say a word to him. He just stood there. Now, obviously, Jeremy knew about my guide chief, but he didn't know all the details in regards to the way he was built, what he wears, and how he assisted me throughout the years. That night, he described chief to a T, again saying things like, he just stood there, mom. And for the record, I hadn't communicated with chief much in the last five years while living in the quote-unquote haunted house. Then on the way home, after group, Jeremy and I had two important conversations. I said, I wonder if your guide is maybe both of our guides. And then Jeremy said, you know how you talk about past lives? Do you think that it's possible to incarnate into the past? In my mind, I thought, damn, that's some deep thought right there. And I just replied, honestly, that's a good motherfucking question. But I don't see why not, why it couldn't at least be possible considering time is not linear like we perceive it to be. And that was the end of the conversation as we both just kind of pondered the messages and images that came through that evening. And that night I did as my grandmother had requested and I did a little research on Asheville, North Carolina and come to find out it's known for two things. And in case you haven't caught on yet, I will point out there's a pattern forming with the information and series of events as things began to unfold. Things were occurring in twos. For now, I'll say, just keep that in the back of your mind and remember the 22 paths of the Tree of Life that Metatron was speaking about earlier. Anyways, Asheville is known for a lot of things, but what caught my attention the most is it's known for a quote-unquote spiritual vortex, essentially meaning the frequency of energy there is much higher than surrounding areas. Also, it's right next to and runs in conjunction with the Cherokee Mountains. Hmm. The same mountains 12 generations of ancestors on my mother's side of the family originated from. Then I realized it was only an hour and a half away from where Jeremy was going to school. So I thought, oh my God, this is perfect. So I ended up planning for Jeremy, myself, and my mother-in-law to spend a week in Asheville before we dropped Jeremy off for college. And I started to feel like we were going to find something there. I didn't know what it was, but they always guided with purpose, right? Why would this be any different? This brings us to June of 2021 as we moved from that infamous haunted house we spent the last five years at to a smaller, less spiritually active home. However, the week before, Jeremy ran into some car trouble and we had to make different arrangements as far as our timing and we just decided we'll take my truck to North Carolina, let Jeremy keep it while we fix his truck here and figuring that we'll swap him out later and that just gives me a reason to go visit him. So we decided that we would leave on June 22nd. But on the evening of Monday, June 19th, my sister got a phone call for my mom's phone number with a police officer on the other end. He had advised us that my mother was on the side of the road with a flat tire. He went on to explain that she was not responding verbally to him. He said he tried to help her, but the only thing she did was sit in her car, dial my sister's phone number, and handed the phone to him. My sister immediately called me and I jumped in the car to meet her there. Mind you, at this point, I had not seen nor spoken to my mother for a year and a half after she disowned me in 2018. On my way there, for whatever reason, I told my dad, if I have to choose, I will choose Jeremy every time, meaning I had to leave to take him to college on the 22nd. I wasn't risking his education or jeopardizing his dream for anyone or anything. And halfway to meet my sister, she called me again and said, meet me at the hospital instead. 
Something's not right. So I did. When I arrived, I saw my mother being wheeled in on a wheelchair by a nurse with my sister walking behind her. She couldn't stand nor talk. She looked delusional and in utter disarray from her lack of cognitive functions down to her clothing. We didn't know what happened or what was going on. She was covered in EKG stickers on her chest and arms as if she was recently in the hospital and what looked to be bruises all over her arms. As we followed the nurse into the emergency room, I stayed walking behind the wheelchair, my sister and the nurse, because the reality was I was not prepared to see her in that condition, and if I was being honest, it was the saddest thing I've ever seen. For the past year and a half since my mother had disowned me, my sister was the only one really in contact with her. We decided we would financially split the cost to buy and bring her groceries or have them delivered or whatever needed to be taken care of. She didn't have to like me or understand me, but the fact of the matter was she was a human being and I had a promise to keep to my father, so I helped in whatever way that I could. My sister, however, immediately pointed out to me that there was a drastic change in her physical appearance within the last five days since she last saw her. She looked to have lost about 30 to 40 pounds, not to mention she wasn't wearing her glasses, which she was blind as a bat, so she definitely needed them to drive, and her hair was matted and tangled as though she had begun utterly unable to take care of herself. When admitting her in the emergency room, I knelt down and I looked at her and I said, what happened? Who did this? She didn't even recognize me or respond in any way that would suggest she even knew what was going on. She looked empty, and I know that that's a harsh way to describe it, but that is the only way to describe it, and soon enough you will understand why. But I want you to think about that. Why would I say it that way? Why would I ask her who did this? At the time, it didn't make sense, but it will. After they took her in the back, my sister and I were in the waiting room trying to figure out what the fuck happened. My sister then mentioned my mother had called her a day before and said she needed her to come over and look at this letter the hospital had given her, that my mom didn't understand it and needed help reading it. Two things to keep in mind here. One, my mother, we believe wholeheartedly, had undiagnosed Alzheimer's or dementia along with paranoid personality disorder. Looking back, we believe the Alzheimer's started to rear its ugly head about five years prior. The paranoid personality disorder, well, we'll get to that later. However, anyone that has dealt with someone suffering from Alzheimer's knows it can be exceedingly difficult. My mom would call my sister all the time with things that didn't make sense, things that happened 15, 20 years ago, and sometimes with concerns that yes, she needed help with, but weren't as urgent as clearly this letter was. So that phone call my sister received a day prior wasn't something out of the ordinary. It just didn't feel like it had a sense of urgency to it. So my sister figured she'd follow up with her the next day when she got out of work. And secondly, I remembered while sitting in the waiting room, I had a series of dreams that week, the week of June 8th. 2021. One specifically I remember where we were in a courtroom and my mom was yelling at my sister and I about how she wanted her services to be handled because her license had been taken away. Again, dreams can be oddly prophetic, mixed with symbols, and this definitely wasn't a coincidence. So within about 10-15 minutes of talking to my sister in the waiting room while my mother was being evaluated, I looked at my sister and said, listen, let me run to her house and see if I can find this letter and maybe get her medications because she was diabetic, she was on a lot of medications, and maybe that will help them and us know what the fuck is going on. So I get halfway to the house and all of a sudden I'm filled with a wave of rage and anger. Like someone did something to cause this and I needed to defend my mother. Again, the same way I felt when I asked her who did this. When I arrived at her house, I find her door is unlocked. 
This was just another thing that was completely out of character for my mother. Throughout the years, she was paranoid about a lot of things. She most certainly would have never in her right mind left her door unlocked. As I stepped into her house, it looked like it had been robbed. Food was left out, garbage was everywhere, empty prescription bottles everywhere. You looked, dirty clothes, half-packed boxes strode throughout the house. You name it. This, again, was out of character. Our mother was a neat freak. Her house never, and I mean never, was like it was the day I walked in there. Within a minute or so, I found the letter she was talking about, gathered what I assumed were most of her prescriptions, which we will address in a moment. But the whole time, a feeling of intrusiveness was overwhelming and undeniable while I was in her house. Then, all of a sudden, I heard, take your father's ashes and all of our jewelry out of the jewelry box. And so I did. Then I locked the door and I headed back to the hospital. On the way back to the hospital, I thought, why did I take that stuff? Why did I feel such intrusiveness when I got in there? And why am I so mad as if somebody was involved with my mother's current state? I mean, yes, I knew the jewelry my mom had was really all she had left from our father, aside from his ashes, and the jewelry she had was far from cheap. Plus, my father's jewelry was in that jewelry box as well. But at the time, it didn't occur to me who actually guided me to do those things, and I most certainly didn't understand why. Nonetheless, like always, I didn't question it, I just did it and left. When gathering all of her prescriptions to bring to the emergency room, I noticed amongst all other medications she had, some of the prescription bottles her doctor had been prescribing her were 190 full-strength oxycodones for a 22-day supply, some dating back for over two years. A 75-year-old diabetic woman who clearly was also dealing with a mental illness and who has been on a do-not-prescribe list for controlled substances was being prescribed one 190 full-strength oxycodones for a 22-day supply. What the actual fuck? Again, there were two letters I found while I was there. One of them was from her primary doctor dated June 5th, 2021, just shy of two weeks earlier, dismissing her from all his practice and all prescriptions therein, including the 22-day supply of full-strength 190-count oxycodones, not to mention all of her diabetic medications amongst everything else she was prescribed. The other letter was a hospital discharge notice from the same hospital my father passed away in two days prior on June 17th, 2021, talking about what happens when you leave against medical advice. It seemed as though I was starting to realize the malpractice and mistreatment from my 75-year-old mother's disgrace of a doctor was where my anger was coming from. Not long after my sister and I began to put two and two together, the nurse advised us not only did my mother have pneumonia, diabetic ketidosis, from being removed from all of her medication and dehydration, but she was also going through withdrawals from being removed cold turkey from the unreasonable and uncontrolled amount of oxycodones her doctor had wrongfully been prescribing her, which again explains why she had lost so much weight in such little time and the unusual lucid behavior and inability to care for herself. Disgust and repulsion from such inconceivable and inhumane treatment from a man that took an oath to take care of his patients doesn't begin to explain how we feel about this so-called doctor. My sister and I decided I'd be the first one to go back and see her. When I entered the room, I stood beside her and I looked at her and I said, do you know who I am? And she said, yes, I remember when you got married. Unfortunately, she didn't know who I was. She was unconsciously and lucidly talking about things yet to come. She saw me as Jeremy's wife. She was talking as though she was recalling Jeremy's wedding in full detail. Again, her and Jeremy were remarkably close from birth up until she got too sick to be around. Jeremy was the light that helped her many years after my dad transitioned 
as I stated in previous chapters, and that's just the way it was, and that's just the way it will always be. So I let her speak about Jeremy's future wedding for a moment there in the hospital until she finished. And then I told her I was going to get my sister and I'd be right back. I knew walking out of that room that was the last time I would ever see my mother. Later that day, we found out she originally went to our local hospital just two days prior and left against medical advice because they wanted to send her to the same hospital my father transitioned in to better be able to help her. Unfortunately, that's why she refused and left out of fear. The doctors told us that day again that they indeed needed to send her there because they just didn't have the capability to care for her. So my sister and I told them we were going to head home and to contact us when they transported her and we would meet them there. As I left that day, I looked at my sister and I said, you know, she's not coming out, right? I looked in her eyes and she's not there anymore. Sadly, my sister agreed. When I said that to my sister, I said it with the utmost respect and understanding because I knew, as well as my sister knew, that when my mom pulled over and handed the phone to that police officer, that her soul had already vacated the body. It was only returning for bits and pieces of communication thereafter. We already learned that lesson with our dad. And with what I do for a living, it's been proven time and time again that our souls indeed will exit the body before the body gives out. When it's our time to return home, never does a soul suffer through the physical body. And not an hour later, my sister received a phone call from the nurse before they transported her to the other hospital. Our mom had asked the nurse to call us and tell us that she loves both her girls, case in point. My sister and I both agreed that I did have to take Jeremy the following morning on the 22nd, which also happens to be my sister's birthday. I told my sister I loved her and I was only a phone call away if she needed me. And that night I broke the news to my boys and I included that if I ever found out they took a controlled substance like that ever, I would beat them an inch from their life because when you fall into the depths of that hell, the likelihood of you coming out of it is slim to none. That morning on June 22nd, on my sister's birthday, we left for North Carolina. Halfway there in West Virginia, my sister called me to tell me that the hospital called and wanted to know if they should make her comfortable or if they should aggressively try to help her regain her health. But she was declining fast and we had to make a choice. We decided that the 17 years she suffered with a broken heart after our dad transitioned, that she deserved to transition with dignity and grace. So as she headed to the hospital to sit with our mother, I planned to find a rest stop so that I could be with her at least over the phone. I told my sister I wasn't telling Jeremy at that point, right or wrong, I couldn't do it halfway to North Carolina, so when I pulled over, Jeremy and my mother-in-law got a bite to eat while I walked around and waited for my sister to call. While I waited, I remember asking for my dad to speak through me when she called, because honestly, I didn't know what to say. My mother held such a deep-rooted fear in going to hell, just like Thomas Ray in previous chapters. I was honestly worried she was going to be earthbound or stuck in between because of that fear. I wanted to say exactly what needed to be said so she could finally be at peace, because no matter what, our souls, each and every one of them, deserves just that, dignity, grace, and peace. Then I heard my mother say, This is the best gift I could ever give her, my sister, to release her from the burden. So I immediately texted that to my sister. Finally, my sister calls and tells me she's there with her mom and that her eyes were open, but she wasn't responsive. I immediately apologized to my sister for not being there. She assured me it was okay and said she always knew she would be the one with her when that time came. I then asked my sister to put me on speakerphone so she could hear me, and I couldn't tell you everything that I said, but what I do remember saying was, Hey, it's Kelly. I'm sorry I'm not there. I had to take Jeremy to college. But we want you to know that we love you. 
that all is forgiven, that every burden and cycle is broken. We promise to take care of each other and the boys. There's no reason to hang on any longer. You have nothing to fear. I know you see that light and I promise you, if you go towards it, daddy will be on the other side just waiting to dance a jig with you. You don't have to wait until 2.35 because we know you'll come and see us. We'll know all the signs when they come and you deserve this dignity and grace so that your soul can finally be at peace. My sister said that she responded what little she could when I started to talk and it was noticeable. And as I spoke, her heartbeat got slower and slower. And by the time I said the last word, my sister said her heart had stopped and you could see her soul leave the body. My sister said she had never seen my mother look so peaceful. My mom's passing was bittersweet, yes, but also the most beautiful experience of one's reunion to her truest self I have ever had the honor of being a part of. Through everything in this lifetime and in previous lifetimes we all experienced, the act of forgiveness from all three of us is what allowed her to transition with the dignity and grace that she deserved not to mention, allowed the cycle to finally be broken. That was indeed the grandest gift my mother could have ever given my sister on her birthday. The act of forgiveness also granted my mother the faith she needed to spare her from living in her own fear-based, self-created purgatory, just like Thomas Ray and like many other souls had experienced unnecessarily. The story of our experiences we encountered inevitably led to the three of us being the ones who removed the karmic cycles for future generations from inheriting. Through compassion, enlightenment, and through forgiveness, this like many, are the true karmic cycles we are all in the process of breaking. In the coming days as we near the end of these experiences and this story, you will finally see not only what Sekhmet and Metatron were speaking of, but also that everything, absolutely everything, happens with a reason and a purpose. It is all part of a divine design. Again, I decided not to tell Jeremy of his grandmother's passing right away. I didn't know when I was going to tell him. I just knew it wasn't time yet. Passing through the Cherokee Mountains, I remember asking Jeremy twice to close his eyes to see if he saw anything. Both times, he saw Native Americans saluting us and then standing in a line down the highway holding hands. I remember laying down in the hotel room two nights in a row, and every time I closed my eyes, I saw my mother's face. Saying as we were all sharing the same hotel room, I would get up and go outside and see what she was trying to say. I'm going to point out here that this was similar to how Turner was coming through, except she waited at least until nighttime when it was quiet rather than bombarding me throughout the day. If I recall correctly, there were two major messages both her and my father told me those nights. One being that she also decided to transition on the 22nd because she had to be with Jeremy on his journey. Now at the time, I thought that she meant simply on his journey through college, being so far away from home, and to be honest, that was comforting. Secondly, she said I was right the whole time and was coming through to show me her true self, her healed self, so that I knew her at her best and not the person both my sister and I were so used to knowing that even she too forgot how it felt to be at peace, whole, and happy. And my dad didn't say much of anything those nights but he just sat beside her with his arm around her like he always did. And as the journey continued, we spent the rest of the week in Asheville, and we loved every minute of it. Then the day came for Jeremy's orientation and move-in day, and that morning as we drove an hour and a half to Denver, North Carolina together, was when I was advised now was the time to tell him his grandmother had passed away. He needed to know, and more importantly, he needed to know what she said, that she transitioned so she could be with him. And as we cried and talked through what happened, Jeremy knew that her transition granted her the peace she so greatly deserved. Soon, the time came to kiss my oldest baby goodbye and wish him well on his journey towards achieving his dream. 
Now, it might just be me and how I am, but I'm sure on some level, most of you moms out there can imagine how hard it is or would be to leave your firstborn 13 hours away from home for the first time in 18 years. Somehow, there was a reassuring voice that kept telling me it was okay, that this was something he had to experience. Nonetheless, that didn't stop the tears from coming as we walked and talked that last day. Just one day later, my mother-in-law and I arrived back in New York on June 26th, and on Monday, June 28th, I spent the day with my sister cleaning out my mom's house at 4.30 p.m. That day, I talked to Jeremy after he got out of school, and at 7.30 p.m., he had messaged me and said he was finishing his homework, and at 8.30 p.m., my phone rang again from Jeremy's phone number, except it was not Jeremy on the other end of the phone. I know I will tell you that this is a phone call I wouldn't wish upon anyone, nor is it one that I will ever forget. There was a woman on the other end of the phone that told me she was with my son and he had been shot. Immediately dropping to my knees, I'm sure you could have heard me scream for miles. As the woman on the other end sat with my son wrapping him in blankets, I told her, you tell my son I am on my way and he is okay. Frantically taking nothing but a cell phone, my wallet, my husband, and my youngest, I did 100 miles an hour all the way to the airport, only to find there were no flights leaving anywhere that night. So we rented a car and for three hours driving as fast as I could to get to my baby. We had no idea where our son was or if he was okay. All I kept repeating was, he's okay, he's okay. Then randomly without reason, or so I thought, I would hear the song Wagon Wheel by Darius Rucker play in my head, only to very quickly dismiss it and continue repeating, he's okay. Finally, three hours later, we were able to speak to the police department who put us in contact with the hospital Jeremy was at. I will tell you, being able to hear Jeremy's voice as we talked to him on the phone was the best thing I ever could have asked for. And by 8 a.m. the next morning, we arrived at the hospital. As I approached the room he was in, a nurse greeted me and I asked, do I need to prepare myself? And she said, oh no, he looks good. When I saw my baby sitting in that room, let me tell you, a million things ran through my mind. All kinds of things, like who did this and what happened. But all I did was fall to his feet in pure gratitude that he was alive and well sitting in front of me. Looking back, I can say and have said to him, when I walked in that room, his energy or essence was absolutely different. Different in a good way, but definitely different. Eventually, later that day, we asked what happened. Essentially, Jeremy drove to go see a friend of his from back home that had moved to North Carolina after he graduated. This was after he did his homework that night. He ended up dropping his roommate off so he could get his car fixed and then headed to what he thought was the right direction to meet up with his friend. Unknowingly, driving into a town well-known for drug dealing and violence. But outwardly, I will tell you, this town looked completely safe as there were kids playing outside the apartment building he pulled into. And I'm going to clarify a few things for you too, real quick. Number one, where we live, it is literally nothing but a bunch of back roads and farmland. Houses are fairly far apart. It's a very country-like setting compared to what most people think when you say you live in New York. Secondly, the area Jeremy drove to to meet his friend was no different. It looked almost identical. He did not get lost in what you assume would be a city or a well-populated area. In fact, it was a dead-end road diagonally across from a police station. Nonetheless, he pulled into this apartment complex with a bunch of kids playing outside, got out of his truck to see if he could find his friend's apartment, and was approached by a kid that asked him if he had a cigarette. When Jeremy said no, he turned around and headed back to the truck. The kid continued to approach him. Jeremy mentioned he somehow knew he couldn't get back into the truck, and by the time the kid was next to the truck, he had pulled out a 9mm and told Jeremy to give him the keys and his wallet. By this time, the gun was pointed at Jeremy's side by his liver, and Jeremy said again he knew he couldn't get shot there. 
So we chose to give the kid 50 bucks in his wallet, hoping that would be enough. Unfortunately, it was not. Assuming this kid didn't get told no very often, he then pistol whipped Jeremy about five times in the head in efforts to get what he wanted. Little did he know, my child has a very hard head. So at that point, Jeremy said he could feel his grandfather with him, and without being able to see, nor ever throwing a punch before, while trying to block the blows, he uppercutted the kid, throwing him back far enough, allowing Jeremy time to maneuver away from the gun. Not to mention, the gun malfunctioned just before. But then this kid fired countless gunshots towards Jeremy while running away. So many shots that the woman that wrapped my baby in blankets, essentially saving him, said she thought it was fireworks. Two bullets went straight through Jeremy, one through the chest, one through his lower leg, and the other ricocheted off the truck, hitting Jeremy's back leg and became lodged in his upper pelvis. Jeremy somehow mustered up enough energy to scream, someone call 911, I've been shot. And the 60-year-old woman I spoke with, who happened to live in the apartment complex, ran over while her friend called 911 and got blankets to stop the bleeding. She said he had lost so much blood his lips were turning blue and at one point he looked at her and said, I don't want to die. Although there are moments Jeremy can recall and cannot, he told me at one point before the Mercy flight and EMTs had arrived he was lying on his side and he saw my mother leaning down next to him with his grandfather behind her as if he was watching the surrounding area. He said, I don't know how she did it, Mom, but she put her hands on all four of my wounds, the two that went straight through, and said, don't worry, they're healed. I stayed with him that night in the hospital, and I remember holding his hand while he watched TV, and all of a sudden the TV turned to static, and there was a woman's voice that said, there's nothing there. I looked at Jeremy and said, did you hear that? And he did the message at the time didn't make sense. Two days after he was admitted, they released him from the hospital. We all knew it was too soon. In fact, we asked if we could stay one more day, but we were refused. So as we sat in the discharge area, I told him about all the unwavering support and love that he was getting back home. And with tears in his eyes, he said, I don't understand, mom. I said, understand what? He said about a month before all this happened, I had a dream. I was shot, but in the dream, when I fell, I woke up. In real life, everything was exactly the same. The whole area was exactly the same as the dream, except I didn't remember any of it until I fell in real life. I had nothing to offer him at this point, aside from, sometimes when things happen, baby, we don't understand why right away. All I wanted to do was take away every ounce of pain from him. I wanted to find this kid and slowly torture him for causing my son so much agony. When we got into the car, after being discharged to drive back to the hotel we were staying in, I specifically remember hearing the wagon wheel song repeating in my head again. Nonetheless, we went back to the hospital to get some rest before attempting to drive back home in the morning. As everyone laid down to try to get some rest, I just could not. I kept watching him, making sure he was comfortable, checking for a fever, checking his oxygen levels. And a few hours later, around 11 p.m., I felt his arm and it was super warm, but the rest of his body wasn't. And that's when I heard they didn't give him an antibiotic. So I called the discharge nurses on call and asked them to call me back. Unfortunately, by 3 a.m., I knew something wasn't right and hadn't heard back from the nurses on call yet. So I ran down the road to an all-night Walgreens and bought a thermometer to find out that he didn't indeed have a temperature of a 101.4. We immediately took him back to the hospital and within 30 minutes of that, his temperature was at 104.1. While they readmitted him that night, I was an absolute mess. I couldn't contain the tears. I couldn't contain shit. At that point, there was only one person allowed in the emergency room, so my husband went in with him while I sat outside just sobbing. I remember calling to Sekhmet that night. She was really the only one that I knew that would understand the rage and sadness that I just couldn't contain anymore. While waiting outside, Side. Eventually, I went around the corner to have a cigarette to try to gather myself. And as I stood there trying to calm down, putting my purse down on the ground in between my feet,
feet. Within seconds, this guy walks around the corner to smoke. When I looked at him, all I saw was two teardrop tattoos he had by his eye. One filled in completely and the other just outlined. And for the record, I know that there's a few different meanings why people will have these kind of tattoos. However, I guarantee you that that man has one filled in tattoo because he did kill somebody. And to be honest, I was looking for a reason to fuck someone up, anyone at that point. So as he walked around the corner to smoke, he looked at my bag sitting on the ground, as did I. And I looked up at him as to say, go ahead, motherfucker. I might have a face full of tears right now, but I will fuck you up, so give me a reason. But he didn't. A few minutes later, he asked me why I was crying. So I took a deep breath, looked at him dead in his soul, and said, somebody shot my son for no goddamn reason. I can't even begin to tell you, but I know at that moment, he saw a version of what he put someone else through in the past. After a few moments of that unspoken realization, he quietly walked away. After that, my husband came out and we switched places. Jeremy definitely had an infection in his lungs, which was causing the fever. He never should have been released. He needed surgery to drain the pooling blood in his lungs. Once he was stable around 7 a.m., I headed back to the hotel to try to sleep before they did the surgery. This was the moment of clarity. And honestly, I couldn't tell you why it was this moment, but it was. And as I turned the corner to walk down the longest, ugliest hallway back to my room, it was right then and there, within an instant, I decided I wasn't going to be angry at this kid. I couldn't be a hypocrite. How could everything happen for a reason and this not have some kind of grander purpose? I know hate and anger destroys and spreads like a cancer, and I wasn't going to allow this experience to continue spreading that. I most certainly wasn't going to let that overflow and bleed all over my child. So right then and there, I just surrendered, and I forgave him, trusting that it all happened with a grander purpose. I walked into the hotel room, laid on the bed, and immediately saw two things that I knew beyond the shadow of a doubt were indeed visions since all this occurred. The first was I saw Jeremy coming home and walking down our driveway, and then I saw him walking across stage and graduating. Let me tell you, there was a sense of calmness and peace that washed over me, and I went to sleep. About two hours later, my husband came back to the hotel to shower before they took Jeremy into surgery, and as we headed back to the hospital while we were in the waiting room, I looked up and I saw this gigantic picture of a female lion curled with her cub on the wall. I looked down and I saw the letter J and I closed my eyes only to see the word apprehended, which by definition means arrested for a crime. To only then immediately hear that damn wagon wheel song in my head again. And for the record, I don't believe I would have received or accepted a single piece of intuitive information had I not raised myself to the level of vibration to which forgiveness operates at. The surgery took what seemed like forever. It took about five hours for us to go back and see him. But by that time, one of us needed to go back to the hotel room to be with our youngest son, and one of us had to stay. My husband stayed. Thankfully so, too. Because after Jeremy's surgery, they gave him an antibiotic for the infection and a hydrocodone for the pain, to which he ended up having a horrible allergic reaction to. Elevated heart rate, full body rash, low oxygen levels, and a room full of doctors and nurses. I would have panicked. My husband did, but he was able to deal with it a hell of a lot better than I would have been able to. Again, everything happens for a reason. When he was finally stable, my husband and I switched again, and I went back to sit with Jeremy while he came back to the hotel. When I walked into the room, not only was that damn song in my head again, Jeremy was standing up so they could change his bandages. So I walked over, standing in front of him, with his hands on top of mine, forehead to forehead, and I looked down, and I immediately saw his birthmark. It was just two inches away from his chest wound. All of a sudden, I knew that this all occurred with the purpose of Jeremy breaking his own cycle in a time frame necessary to be broken, because it had to be at the same time my sister, my mother, and I broke ours. That when he died in that past 
past life that created the birthmark my grandmother advised me of 18 years prior. It was in the same location of North Carolina where we were currently in, where the 12 tribes once lived, 12 generations of our ancestors that greeted him in meditation just weeks prior and down the highway at the exact age in a past life. Except in this lifetime, for this contract, he and I both made different choices throughout our life experience. We responded, to which allowed us the opportunity to fully break the cycle, erasing the past from repeating, and he survived, and my mind was blown. Now, I didn't share this with him right away, but once he was settled, I stepped outside and took a moment to look up what was so damn relevant with this song that wouldn't stop playing in my head. Aside from the fact that the song does talk about traveling to North Carolina, there wasn't much that resonated and felt relevant, except that wheel. And then I heard, take some cedar, only to look up and see a dozen cedar bushes, and one that was dead and dried with cedar available to take respectfully. So I did. I then decided to message a dear friend of mine, Mike, who I mentioned in chapter 10, and who joined my solstice meditation with Sekhmet in 2020, who is also a practicing native. I still felt like I needed a little bit of help thinking clearly, so I asked him to remind me what cedar was supposed to be useful for. He reminded me you could smudge with it or bathe in it. Unfortunately, I couldn't burn it or steep it and have him bathe in the cedar, so I just headed back up to Jeremy's room to give it to him. Then on the way back up, I found a single black feather, just as I stepped onto the elevator. Continuing to text Mike, he made mention of the medicine wheel and the cedar being connected to the west, and bingo, there it was. I remembered the bear, Jeremy's spirit animal, was also connected to the west. Now in most traditions, the medicine wheel will have four animals within it, representing the four directions. Most common is the bear, in the black section of the wheel. This represents autumn, and in this season, it's said to be a time to determine what is best to release and let go of within yourself and within your life. Also a time to begin and start considering what you want to give birth to in the spring. So when I got back up to Jeremy's room, I said, honey, close your eyes and tell me what you see. Tell me four animals that you see. And quickly, without thought, he rattled off a bear, a kangaroo, a lion, and a weasel. The following, are the traditional Native American meanings of those four spirit animals. The kangaroo medicine reminds us that you can only move forward. There's no option to move backwards. The momentum you have created previously is allowing you to keep moving forward without ever having the need to look back. Even if the path before you isn't clear, the intuitive guide within is telling you to keep going. There are bigger leaps and bounds and better things that lay ahead. Kangaroo medicine also reminds us that we are in the nine-month cycle of creation. Our current paths will take us nine months to mature and come full circle. In other words, June to March or autumn to spring. The bear medicine encourages us to bring balance and integrity into the physical world. It is your mission to generate harmony in the world if this animal is your spirit animal. Bear medicine can also be letting you know that it is time to go inward and explore the notion of your very essence and existence. Therefore, with this spirit animal, you must delve deep into your soul to find the significance of your path and your journey. And in essence, bear medicine is notifying you that you are free to roam a limitless path at your own will and follow the chosen path. People with the bear totem have an excellent understanding of their destiny. They know their direction, purpose, and are great facilitators in helping others find their way. The lion medicine brings us a message of wisdom and insight. However, lion medicine asks us not to overdo things in order to achieve our goals. Instead, the lion encourages us to keep an even mind and an overall balance in our activities. 
Lion Medicine is the ultimate protector of home and hearth, and she focuses on timing, power, and aiding your ability to recognize and understand your own honor and royalty within. Let's not forget Sekhmet. The Weasel Medicine is about reminding us to believe in ourselves and our abilities. Thus, it asks you not to let people's negative words and actions dictate how you feel about yourself or your path. When a weasel appears, it's a message to you that you are powerful and can achieve anything. Moreover, this animal medicine reminds you to pay attention to the things happening around you and within, trusting your instincts at all times. In other words, the spirit animal medicine can be telling you to walk away from someone or something that feels off. Significant? I most certainly would say so. So I proceeded to write this out in a note on my phone and showed it to Jeremy and he just smiled and said, yep, that makes sense, mom. There were no more tears. There were no more not understanding. We finally began to start to understand what had unfolded and why. Lastly, before Jeremy could be released from the hospital for the second time, they wanted to make sure there were no blood clots. So they scheduled him to have one last CT scan. Naturally, the worry continued, but just as they wheeled him down, I heard that same woman's voice that we heard on the television just five days prior saying, there's nothing there. As always, it didn't make sense at the time, but now it did. There were no blood clots there. We could make our trip safely back home, and we did. Then on July 26, 2021, after finally returning home safely, I was changing Jeremy's bandages, and he looked at me and says, Mom, I'm kind of sad. I was like, oh my God, why? And he's like, no, Mom, my birthmark's gone. I was like, oh my dear sweet baby Jesus, let me see. And sure as shit, it's gone. And you might be asking yourself, what? How? Why? And I'm going to tell you right now. Return to a month or so before all of this happened when Jeremy asked me if we could incarnate into the past. I didn't really have an answer. If we reevaluate what Sekhmet said back in January, which was, when an experience or a situation is presented to you that seems uncomfortable, that's when a different timeline, path, or contract is being presented to you. This contract is a neutral energetic agreement presented when your frequency, your essence, has the opportunity to align and transition throughout space and time. Throughout space and time. Think about that. We think and we talk like time is linear and it's not. The past really isn't in the past. It's all happening simultaneously. In relation to the series of events that took place, essentially Sekhmet presented the answer before the question even arose. She explained, if there was an experience that took place at any given point in time, like a past life, that caused Jeremy's genetic makeup and cellular memory to create a birthmark from a traumatic experience, then at another point in time, or another lifetime in this case, a similar contract or opportunity presents itself, allowing an opportunity for balance and harmony to take place. Remember, karma's job is to restore an imbalance, and once it's restored, it's no longer relevant, it no longer exists, it's no longer needed to experience, it is erased from existence. Throughout Jeremy's life, he responded instead of reacted. In turn, he fundamentally changed the past, erasing the cause and effect of his birthmark's existence and the experience of his trauma or his karmic cycle was erased on every possible known level of existence. He was able to do this by choosing myself as his mother, his grandmother, and everyone therein, including our genetic bloodline within this life experience. 
This is the true tangible result of breaking a generational and or karmic cycle. And I'll remind you all, this happens more often in our lives than we assume. It is not something that always is connected to a past life, though it can be, and it's not something that's always this dramatic, though it can be. That is the beauty of the duality in the divine design. The generational and karmic cycles that myself, my sister, and my mother went through were broken, yes, but we only had a feeling of peace to solidify that that cycle had been broken. It's not easy to validate a past life. It's not easy to validate the things that are unspoken and unseen. However, when we broke that cycle, it allowed Jeremy to immediately be presented with his own opportunity to break his own cycle. The result of his cycle being erased from the past was able to be seen tangibly within his cellular and genetic makeup, his birthmark. When cycles are broken, karma no longer exists. It's permanently erased from existence. How fucking mind-blowing is that? How powerful is that? And guess what? You're all going through it right now every single one of you, because that is humanity's destiny to return to harmony and balance. Likewise, with all the choices and responses therein, I will remind you, had I never forgiven this kid, I would have never been able to retain the energetic frequency to receive the information that allowed us to see the grander picture. Moreover, had I not forgiven my mom, had I not been raised by spirit and all the accumulated experiences I've ever encountered, never would I have been able to be where I am today. My mother, my sister, and I would have never been able to forgive and heal the past lifetimes we experienced together. Hence, we would have lived and passed down the repeated cycles and negative emotions not only to future generations, but also her soul could have very well continued to suffer in its own self-created purgatory because of the reaction and the choice. And like Sekhmet said, when you create an experience, relationships that are developed over time, long-lasting if you will. As time passes, you drift apart. And although the relationship and the daily experiences fade, your emotions to them will linger long thereafter. Awareness is the key, but forgiveness will always be the answer. And this brings me to the unspoken trauma that my mother encountered at such a young age that no one, and again, I mean no one, never knew about. The following answered all the questions that we had growing up as far as why my grandfather was never spoken of, why he apologized in spirit in such a way, why he appeared just days before Jeremy's opportunity to erase his past and experience life karma free. It wasn't until after my mother's passing it was brought to our awareness that our grandfather, being a Freemason and local preacher within the church, had sexually abused my mother and used his status within the community and within religion as the backbone of this abuse. This was the creation of her undiagnosed trauma and the paranoid personality disorder that she suffered her entire life from. This was also karmic and a part of her lesson that she too had to experience. This answered all the questions we had as to why so many lives were lived with such betrayal and abuse and death, why she always judged through the use of religion and why it seemed as though our father was the only one that ever mattered to her. Of all the experiences within my life, I know now they all had valuable lessons intertwined with this and its outcome. They lovingly guided me down the path that taught forgiveness and unconditional love to my children and eventually towards all of humanity's experiences. Never to judge a soul's experience, not to look at human beings as human beings, to have eyes and ears to see that we are spiritual beings living a human experience. For that was my mother's grandest gift to me and to her grandchildren, and this series is my grandest gift to you.